is uh, really remarkable. I'm going to try to handle it in uh, two ways. One is to just go through and we'll try to look at things uh, more historically without a lot of prophetic explanation. And then I'll try to just move all of the prophetic explanation uh, to our, or most of, uh, try to keep from chasing the rabbit trails and move uh, that prophetic explanation to the end uh, after we've moved through the chapter. So why don't we uh, pray and then we'll take a look at Leviticus chapter 23. Father, we thank you very much uh, for your grace and your goodness in our lives and and for this passage that we're about to study and all that uh, you show us and all that you expose within this chapter. Please minister to us with your Holy Spirit and the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, to start, uh, this chapter is a really interesting um, uh, sort of prophetic blueprint. So uh, when we read through it, uh, the Jews were then going to go through centuries of practicing uh, all of these festivals and all of these celebrations, and every one of them uh, points to occurrences that are going to happen in uh, future Jewish history, and uh, even the church is very strongly represented uh, in this. The Gentile church is very strongly represented in this chapter. So uh, again, as far as the book of Leviticus goes, this is one uh, I'm, I could probably do a, a series of sermons out of this. I'm going to do my best to go through, give you the core uh, but uh, I would encourage you to spend some time reading this on your own and really reflect on the New Testament and even you know the prophetic messages we have from Jesus uh, uh, through John, the book of Revelation, and otherwise. So it's a really remarkable piece of work in the Old Testament as a whole. So Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. So we're going to get seven feasts here. Three of them were mandatory uh, for all of uh, the men uh, to come to Jerusalem and participate in. Uh, it was tradition that uh, pretty much the families together went and uh, celebrated these if they could, uh, but definitely the men uh, were required uh, to be there for the three that we'll talk about. In verse 3, six days shall work be done, uh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So within Jewish history, obviously, uh, you have at creation where the Lord rests himself on the Sabbath uh, as an example to us. We have lots of explanation from the scripture, from the Lord, that it wasn't out of some form of exhaustion that having completed the creation, God needed to take a break. It was an example 
to the human race that they needed to rest from their work in order to recuperate. And with that, it's really interesting that the very first whole day of Adam's existence was the Sabbath. Created on the sixth day, he enters into creation in rest. So it's, it's a really great example for us. We, we have things very much backwards in our culture. We, we look at it as work through the week and then sort of collapse into our day of worship, you know, at the end of the week. And uh, the Jewish mindset and God's mindset is that that's how you begin things. You, you, you start the week in rest. You shut down, you get quiet, you, you, you uh, begin in rest. Each day is begun in rest. When the sun goes down, you're in the next day in the Jewish frame of mind. So you're entering your, your new day by putting your body to rest, putting your home to rest, putting your business to rest, and beginning in restfulness. You know, we, we've got things completely backwards in our culture. So um, something to think about uh, there. The church immediately begins worshiping the Lord and taking their rest on Sunday. You can see that in John chapter 20, verse 19, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. Uh, the Gentile church uh, has no attachment to Saturday. Uh, they begin with Sunday, and that's their day of rest, and that's their day of worship. And within this chapter, there's actually some explanation in regard to the Gentile church being the people of the eighth day, the, the new week, the new beginning, the Sunday uh, is, is the uh, start of worship and the start of the week for them. So uh, in verse six, or excuse me, verse four, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed time on the 14th day, first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So Passover and uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread here, we first see mentions of this begin in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, the New Testament uh, refers to Jesus Christ as being the Lamb of the Passover. And he is our Passover Lamb. Uh, you can take note of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Uh, you know, the death of Jesus was at Passover. You can see that in John chapter 18, verse 28. He's the Lamb of God, according uh, to John chapter 1, verse 26, and John chapter 1, verse 39. So, as far as this celebration of Passover goes, Jesus is our Passover Lamb. And verse 6 on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So when they left Egypt in that hurry to depart from the land, there was no time to allow the bread to uh, ferment with leaven, uh, the yeast and rice. After the first Passover, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a testimony throughout 
their generations. You can see that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, that every time they were to consume of the Passover, it would remind them of that departure from Egypt. We'll talk about it a little bit more, but that Passover feast was what we refer to as the Last Supper that Jesus was eating. It was consumed by him and the disciples the day before the Passover, but that was because Jesus was going to be engaged in being the Passover lamb on that day. And so he took the time uh, to be with the disciples and honor that and worship. So here, uh, there to commemorate uh, all that went on in that process. We'll discuss a little bit more uh, of that as we move along. First Corinthians you might want to make note of chapter 5, beginning at verse 7, tells us, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we get a couple explanations in regard to the New Testament and the New Testament Christians in regard to leaven and its understanding for us. Sin could be the broad explanation. Uh, It is more anything that would corrupt So that which would cause uh, the breakdown, we could say. Um, You know, I have taken the time to learn how to make bread and, uh, you know, grew up making bread. The yeast process uh, is literally a living organism digesting the substance within the dough. Uh, So a living organism decomposing uh, what is there is what causes that expansion. Uh, you know, within uh, the individual, you know, the sin and its active function causing the decomposition and the breakdown of relationship with God. Within the church, uh, the active function of sin in the church, you can look at that many different ways. Uh, you know, the deterioration of doctrine the deterioration of morality, the deterioration of so many things uh, can be likened unto leaven in the way that a little bit of it uh, multiplies living organism, uh, procreating, spreading through the whole process until it's corrupted everything. Uh, The church should be painfully aware of that today and how far that that has gone. The widespread deterioration of the church and its doctrine, its teachings, and its morality. Um, you know, this current coronavirus crisis is bringing a lot of that to the surface. Uh, the division that is throughout our entire nation can be painfully seen within the church. Um, you know, I, having taken the stance we have here uh, to just reopen our church as we have, you know, I mean, you can see precautions we're taking even in this room and the way we're all separated from uh, one another, but obeying our king and uh, coming together, 
With that, the thing I would caution you all against, you're here, so to some degree you're agreeing with this position of coming together to worship the Lord. Be careful about our attitude that we don't look down on, speak ill of churches that don't or can't get together. You know, uh, the, the illustration I've given a couple times now is uh, David returning from battle and they come to Ziklag and it's burned with fire and their families have been taken captive and they all chase after and having been at war and now pursued a great number of the men are exhausted and can't cross the river with him and so he and his war party cross over and leave a bunch of men behind and they go and retrieve their families and their victory in battle and they come back and the men that are with him most of them are defiant of the men who remain behind and they have terrible things to say about them about how they're not going to receive in the spoils of war and how they're disgraced and David stops everyone's attitude and makes the proclamation that from that time forward in Israel, those who remain behind with the stuff, as it is described, will receive the same reward as those who go forward into the battle. So whichever side of that we're on, we can't take an attitude with the rest of the body of Christ. You know, every church, every organization, every group is going to have to make up their own mind. Uh, this is what I know the Lord has called me to. And uh, I get the sense that it's your thought that that's what the Lord's called you to. And we need to just rejoice in our own work and what the Lord is doing in our midst. And, you know, if it provides, right, if it provides for our brothers and sisters, those men went and retrieved their families and brought their families back to them who had stayed on the other side of the river. So it needs to be a thing of mutual celebration that Christ is working in our midst. The exposure that I'm seeing is the corruption of doctrine, the corruption of morality. Those things are being boiled right to the surface. Uh, you're able to see plainly those who have chosen the wrong paths, those that are abandoning foundational doctrine, that are abandoning the truth of God's word. A very dangerous time and the corruption, the feast of unleavened bread. And we have that New Testament explanation of purging out uh, the leaven from our midst, the hypocrisy, the sin that's so plainly seen. In verse 7, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So, you know, again, throughout uh, these feasts, the Lord is telling them, one, to set the time aside, and two, they need to be in rest during these acts of worship. The Lord wants <clears throat> our worship to be refreshing and to be a thing that, you know, restores us. In verse uh, tw or 9, it starts with an explanation of the feast of first fruits. 
It's also referred to as the Feast of Harvest in Exodus chapter 23, verse 16. So this was one of the three feasts that God commanded all the men of Israel to gather before him yearly. You can see that in Exodus chapter 23 at verse 17. Verse 9 begins by saying, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you. Now, I, I would just ask you to pause right there, uh, because the Lord is telling them that they are going to come into the land. <clears throat> you know, he's going to fulfill his promises to them. Uh, you know, this is uh, something that I think every one of us <coughs> would be wise to understand. Uh, what the Lord has given us for promises, he is going to fulfill. Uh, you know, we... We have promises and we're looking for them in our lives to be fulfilled. We're hopeful in them. And we sort of, you know, go up and down with the experience as it develops. God never wavers. You know, he, he makes a declaration. You know, uh, you know, he who the Son has set free is free indeed. We go through, you know, various stages of uh, being delivered from our sin and feeling like we're free to later stumbling and failing and feeling like we're back, you know, captive to, uh, you know, our sin or whatever it is. And the Lord will say of us in those circumstances, no, I've set you free. You know, you, you're no longer part of that. And in our moment, in our experience, we're looking at it like, I don't know if God is going to fulfill his promise. These people are in the middle of their wilderness wanderings. And God is saying, when you come into the land, you know, when I fulfill these things, when you've you know experienced the fulfillment of my promise, those those are important things to take note of as we move through here. That uh, you know he's telling them you're going to experience exactly what I've promised you. So you know when you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvests, then you shall bring a sheaf. Of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath. So this would be Sunday. So now we begin to see some explanation of the Gentile church and Sunday worship here in the Old Testament. So once again, when we are you know, dealing with people, you know, in Christianity today, in this modern age, that are trying to take Christianity back to the law. You know, telling us that you have to go to church on Saturday. You can no longer eat certain foods. You can no longer drink certain things. You can no longer wear certain clothes. As though that somehow is a requirement of God today for the Gentile Christian church. I mean, this issue has been settled so thoroughly. Why is the church even getting stumbled into these discussions? You know, if somebody wants to do that, I guess that's their own prerogative. But to try and present to anyone else that this is how you're going to become acceptable to God. This is how you're going to achieve salvation is by 
following after these practices, doing all of these particular things. You know, these things have all been finished by Jesus Christ at the cross. That's, that's why he said that from the cross. It is finished. You know, the law has been completed. Uh, the sacrifice of the lamb, all of these practices, they're completed in Jesus Christ. We have no obligation to go back and observe them. You know, I, the people that, you know, want to take us through, you know, at, uh, you know, Easter and uh, show us all of the different, you know, Passover feasts and the meals and the process and the bitter herbs and all that. Great, wonderful. But the thought that somehow we need to return to those things as though that's going to provide us with something. You know, once the house is built, you know, the blueprints aren't anywhere near as interesting. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, if you're going to build a house, the blueprints are significant. You, you very much need them. And that's what this is. You, you know, the construction finally arrives, and there you have the building. Uh, really not all that important to sit down and examine the blueprints. You know, if somebody wants to you know, say, oh, how was that constructed right there? You know, some of it's hidden inside that wall. How were you able to accomplish? Well, let's look at the blueprints. And, and so here, that's what we're doing. We're looking at how God laid things out. But Jesus Christ drives literally the final nail <laughs> into the process and says, there, it's constructed. It's completed. So, you know, these things have a usefulness to us <clears throat> in a way, but the idea of returning to them, very unnecessary. So this, this harvest that's coming in, the Feast of first fruits, you know, on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hin. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. So they've you know, planted and grown and tended to their grain and now the harvest has come. And the obvious temptation would be that they would begin the harvest and then begin to consume of it. And the proclamation from the Lord for the whole nation is, you don't consume any of the harvest at all until you've brought this offering before the Lord. And, and any of you, you know, that have grown gardens know <clears throat> that there's a wide variable Right. This year, you know, we just had a snowstorm. Right. I mean, that'll change when you're going to plant. Uh, you know, look at how <clears throat> certain years of, you know, sunlight versus certain years of cloudiness and shade will stunt or accelerate a crop so that you're harvesting sooner or harvesting later than what you expected. So, so you know, if this feast, if they've already brought in the grain, 
and already been through, you know, all of or most of the harvest, the Lord is literally saying, you're going to wait until the appointed time of this feast to bring me the first portion before you begin to consume of it. That, that portion has to come in to me. And it isn't some kind of forcefulness. It's God uh, teaching them that the fruitfulness of what you receive comes from me. You know, so very often, you know, we think of things, and right now is an especially poignant time where people think of things like, you know, that job has provided for me for years. Well, maybe that's why the Lord has taken it away from me to teach me that it wasn't that job that provided for me, that it was the Lord. Is he still sustaining you? Is he still caring? And if you're right now thinking, well, not like you used to, well, is he sustaining you? You know, not many of us in this room look like we've shriveled right up. You know what I'm saying? The Lord is caring for us. The Lord is caring for us. And he promises us that if we will trust him, he will continue to care for us. You know, so this isn't this isn't some mandate that God is putting forward. Like if if you dare touch that grain, I'm telling you, I'm going to come down on you. This is Him saying gently and lovingly to these farmers that look when when the crop is good, that's because I've blessed the crop. When the crop is lean, that's because I purpose that. So you'll pay attention to me, so that your focus will always be me. Rather than your own hands, your own work, your own food, your own harvest. What a gift, right? Uh, you know, we, we don't know what we have until it's gone, right? We, we, we hear that said all of the time. And it's not until it's gone that we go, hey, that's really true. Uh, you know, I hadn't looked at things. I hadn't thought of things this way. Yeah. How many times have you, you thought of something you'd like to do uh, and in these 10 weeks and been unable to do it. You know, I jokingly passing by my wife yesterday, I said, Hey, I'll be back. I'm headed to the riverside for breakfast. You know, no, I'm not, <laughs> you know, it's closed and nobody's having breakfast at the riverside. You're not going to the movies. You're not, you know, headed out for the evening to do a lot of the things you used to. You don't know what you have until it's gone. The great abundance that our nation has and our nation is, that came from the Lord. And I'm insistent that you know people get offended with me. God is doing this to us right now. God is doing this to us right now to wake us up. This is a very gracious thing. Did he create and send the coronavirus? Absolutely not, right? Sin and death entered into this world through one man, Adam, and his disobedience to God. What has the Lord brought to us? Life and redemption. That's what the, the second Adam, Jesus, brought to us. But the Lord is capitalizing on these circumstances. You know, I, be one of the people who capitalize. Right? We've all met those bitter people that are filled with fear, that are freaking out over what's currently going on. Understand that your heavenly Father is taking care of you. That he is guiding you through this. You know, if, if you are especially feeling like, no, he's not. Trust me, he is. 
You know, the Lord wants your focus on him. If you're stinging worse than the rest of us right now, uh, then maybe it is that the Lord needs to do that in our lives in order that our attention would be focused on him. He, he knows to what degree, right? How many times have I quoted those first few verses in the book of James to this congregation? Consider it pure joy whenever you're faced with trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It, isn't, it doesn't say it's going to be joyful. James told us you have to consider it pure joy. Why? Because the Lord recognized something in me and you that needs to grow up. There was a lack of maturity, so he sends in the trial and the test to develop the maturity, to develop the growth, right? Any of us that have raised children, we know we do this, right? We had uh, friends years ago, and uh, their family had a, a medical crisis, and they all went to Boston to care for their youngest child and they they ended up leaving two of their children with us for like eight weeks they were they were there uh, to the point that the daughter began to refer to us as mom and dad you know she's a, just a little girl and um so when they finally were past uh this uh, big infection that their son had and able to come home you know we had that reuniting day where they came to the house to pick up the kids and uh, you know, as we're getting ready, uh, we're like zipping up their son's jacket and like tying his shoes, you know, just a little guy. And his mother's like, what are you doing? We're like, oh, just, you know, helping him out, just tying it. And she's like, that kid has been tying his shoes for two years. And he's got a big old smirk on his face, like pulled the wool. He's, he had us doing everything. Yeah, his mother knew the trial and the test she had already put him through to teach him how to do that. We will fall back to the weakness of our flesh so easily, and the Lord will send the tr the test. He will send the trial so that we'll 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 reignite our devotions. We'll we'll spend our time in the Word so that we'll refocus on Him the way that we should. You know, guys, there's going to be a falling away. We know that people are going to be, you know, uh, rebellious and, and against the church and against the Lord. And, and, and there will be a great crisis of faith. When we read it throughout the scripture, we hear it specifically come in the description of the end times. So don't be surprised that there's a thinning of the faith right now. That some people are becoming embittered and walking away and losing heart and, and falling away from the. Have you noticed that there's also a great strength rising? That there are a number of people who are becoming more sincere than they've ever been. And this is what trials do. They, they separate out. You know, they, they create this. So, you know, here, back to the explanation of uh, what the Lord is doing in the midst. Do not partake of this until you've brought in uh, the grain offering to him and given it to him. Now we come to the Feast of Weeks. It's also called Pentecost. So you look in the scripture, uh, it's referred to as ingathering in Exodus chapter 23, 16, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and Acts chapter 20, verse 16. The name Pentecost 
means our 50th day in the Greek. Uh, and in this structure, uh, they always counted the first and the last day as part of the 50. So when they would begin, you know, that was part of the collective whole. In verse 15, it says, You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. So again, Sunday, right? We get a few references here that are pointing us at Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah, they shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. You might want to underline that. They shall be baked with leaven. That is most definitely a reference to the Gentile church. Okay? So here you have in the Old Testament, in the Levitical law. And how about this picture, you guys? Two loaves. One represented of the Jews. One representing the Gentiles. Two loaves, right? First miracle Jesus performs. You have the wine that was given first, and then he creates the water, you know, turning it into wine. He doesn't create the water, but he, you know, turns the water into wine. And the second is superior to the first, which was inferior. And yet here, there's leaven in the lump. You know, the Gentile church that comes in, they are the first fruits to the Lord. How interesting is that? First fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year, symbolic of uh, the nation of Israel, without blemish, one young bull, two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord. <clears throat> with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as the wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord, and they shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. <clears throat> it shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. So this was one of the three feasts at which God commanded all the men of Israel to gather before him yearly. Exodus chapter 23, verse 17 there. In verse 22, when you reap the harvest of the land, uh, they are a long way from the land at this point, as we said. You shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from the harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. They had uh, lots of different ways 
of doing this. And depending on what you read, Talmud has traditions. There are all kinds of different things about, uh, you know, anywhere that, because they didn't go through the process, especially with grain, of like furrowing the rows and planting seeds in a line. It was scattering. So the open soil would just have huge handfuls thrown out. And they got pretty skillful at getting a nice dispersion of the grain on the ground so that the crop would grow up. But anywhere that it would scatter out to the edges and there would be a thinning. So you got the bulk here in the center, but like over there, you got grain where that throwing pattern would leave. They would, would specifically leave that off so that the poor had opportunity to go around the edges and in the corners and to harvest from their fields in order to sustain themselves. So there was a welfare program that God designed uh, within the culture, but it required that the people who were going to receive of it went out and worked for it. It wasn't just a handout uh, for them. They had to go and retrieve it for themselves. Uh, You can see that uh, described earlier in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 10, uh, the... uh, way that they were to leave the grain for those that were in need. Obviously, uh, this points to the book of Ruth and uh, her going and harvesting and gleaning uh, the fields uh, and Boaz favoring her and him even telling those that were working in his harvest, uh, essentially, I want you to leave a lot extra. Like, don't even go near the corners, basically. (laughs) Like, leave sections so that woman is able uh, to harvest for herself and for her mother-in-law. They were you know, two widows and the whole relationship that develops there. Uh, the book of Ruth is read uh, at this festival every year in celebration of this very uh, statement and what it is the Lord is saying and teaching the people there. So interesting that within this discussion, as we're reading this, right, we just touched on uh, the fact that this is referring to the Gentile church, and and you've got the the two loaves with 11 uh, baked into it, and now you come to this discussion, and Ruth was a Moabitess, right? And and according to Levitical law, not to be included uh, within any of the families for generations, and she, in the first generation, as soon as she comes back, is married into Israel, right? So the the picture of our prince and king, Jesus, the, the kinsman redeemer, takes a Gentile bride to himself in the midst of this picture of the harvest and celebration. A remarkable thing. And within that, uh, she immediately becomes, uh, you know, the lineage of David, king of Israel. So... It's a remarkable picture that the Lord paints for us, and he's, he's pointing straight at the Gentile church uh, through that particular feast. We'll talk a little bit more. Uh, 23 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, uh, Speak to the children of Israel, uh, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. So, now the Feast of Trumpets, uh, referred to as Rosh Hashanah. Uh, here, the Fall Festival of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement. Uh, the Tabernacles 
during the seventh month. Uh, that's September and October. We're celebrated in conjunction with the harvest of grapes, figs, and olives. So, uh, you know, still a, a picture of the church and uh, the ingathering of the church. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And those offerings are completely consumed uh, to the Lord. Now you come to the Day of Atonement. In verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, uh, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So referred to as Yom Kippur. Uh, afflicting of the souls is different than the other feasts, uh, times of celebration, sacrifice, and feasting. Here, the affliction of the soul would probably most accurately refer to fasting. So going without uh, during this period of time. It's also a time of deep reflection uh, where they think about their sinfulness and they think about uh, their failings. So the Lord wants them to not only have times of celebration, but also to focus on uh, their need for redemption from the Lord. 23:28, you shall don't do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement. And I'll, I'll pause there um, for that explanation once again of the word atonement. Uh, so you can break it down into three parts. At one meant. God wants uh, the human race to be united back to him so that he will be at one with the human race. That's an oversimplification of the explanation, but it is, in fact, God's mindset within this. You know, he doesn't want us to think about our sin and afflict our souls and be overwhelmed with our failures. He wants us to recognize the things that have separated us from him in order that we would be reunited to him. So, so the focus is the at one not the separation, not the breaking of the relationship, instead the repair of the re relationship. For it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in the soul on the same day shall be cut off from his people. If you're not going to participate in this reflection, in this affliction of your person, then you have nothing to do with Israel, is what the Lord is saying. You have to focus not only on the, the abundance and the provision and the goodness that the Lord has given, you also have to focus on the failure, and you've got to focus on the separation and the need for a Savior. So if you're not going to do that, then you'll be cut off. Any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. In the ninth day of the month at the evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Uh, so this statement of God destroying them, uh, you can look at it and think like, well, I mean, <clears throat> did they do that? Did they punish people, stone them to death, 
you know, put them out of the congregation. What, is, what does this mean? You know, do we see God raining fire down from heaven, destroying these people? You know, well, here's a simple explanation. They didn't obey God in this, right, for 490 years. And then he sent invaders in who took them captive and took them away to Babylon for 70 years so that all of these Sabbaths would be fulfilled. And the people were destroyed in the process. Beautifully, their idolatry was destroyed in the process also. When they returned from Babylon, no more idolatry. Still had struggles, still had sinfulness, things to deal with. You don't see idolatry in the land ever again. They were purged of that. God will do that to us. He sets out the mandate. We don't listen. Here comes the punishment. Wave upon wave until the cataclysm arrives, and then we learn our lesson. Because we're children of God. If we don't learn our lesson and we're not experiencing the punishment, Hebrews says, then you're illegitimate. If you're not being disciplined by God, if you're not experiencing, if you're, if you're sinning and getting away with it, you need to be very concerned about how is it that I'm not getting corrected, right? You know, when we're in the grocery store and we see those kids misbehaving, as much as you want to correct them, you don't because they're not your kids. When your kids misbehave, oh, we've left the shopping cart right in the middle of the store. You know what I'm saying? Occasion over. Not only are we going to the car, we're leaving, you know. Because you're my child. We're going, you're going to receive because I'm his child, because you are God's child. You're going to receive correction. So when God makes this statement here, he carries it out. Got to move along. Verse 33, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. The Feast of Tabernacles, Succoth, it's often referred to as. Tents or temporary dwelling places is what we're talking about here. Booths uh, that they would create. We'll talk more about it. Verse 35, On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. For the seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord on the eighth day. Notice that on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. To offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and a burnt offering, everything on its day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. Besides everything else you're doing, I want you to carry out these uh, uh, festivals and feasts and celebrations in your religion. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would move out of their houses and live in uh, usual, sometimes on their rooftops, they would build a temporary shelter, sort of sleep under the stars. And it was the purpose to remind them of their wilderness journey. Uh, that the, especially the children would be like, why are we camping in the yard? You know, why why are we up on this rooftop, you know, in this, you know, lean-to that we've made? 
you know, looking at the stars. Why aren't we sleeping in the house? And they would receive the explanation that because for 40 years, the children of Israel did this. They lived in the wilderness and God sustained them. So they would use it as an opportunity to teach them. Now, in this celebration, there's an interesting history. The Jewish Talmud says that on each of the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, also on the eighth day, a priest went down to the pool of Siloam and drew water in a golden pitcher, which he brought back to the altar, pouring the water into a silver basin as the worshipers sang psalms from what's referred to as the Great Hillel, Psalm 113 through 118. This celebrated the water God miraculously provided for Israel in the wilderness. While that was going on at that feast, Jesus being present, uh, it was done in silence. And then they would sing, they would get the water and pour the water, and that was all very solemn and sober. And then they would sing the songs in the silence. Jesus yells at the top of his lungs, according to John chapter 7, verse 37 through 38. On that day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That must have sent a shockwave of chill right through the crowd, right? If you weren't thirsty, you definitely have that sort of impulse that occurs when someone holds up a basin and begins to pour the water and all kinds of reaction begins to happen in your body. And Jesus then yells, you're thirsty right now? <laughs> you're going to need to come to me in order to receive that satisfaction. You know, think about how the Lord has set this celebration forward and then orchestrated all the little changes that will happen in the nation of Israel until this is their ritual. Knowing, I'm going to stand right there in their midst one day and I'm going to proclaim that I'm the living water that all of their souls have been thirsting for. God is so good to lay the blueprint out and then complete the construction. Let him do that in your life. Amen. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered the fruits of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. On the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the beautiful trees, branches of the palm trees, and boughs of the leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. According to Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 19, it tells us that the Feast of Tabernacles will be celebrated by all the nations in the kingdom of the Messiah. So this is going to go on during the millennial reign. Now, we weren't part of the wilderness wandering. We weren't there with the nation of Israel. We're told that we're sojourners, are we not? Is this not our wandering? Is this not our tabernacle, our tent, which is wearing out? And we will then be in the kingdom in his presence and need to remember and recall 
what the Lord has delivered us from and how he has provided for us. So here at verse 41, you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths, the the tents and dwelling places that they make. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. They shall that your generation may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Gotta bring your mind to remembrance of what the Lord has brought you through. The prophet telling us to remember the rock from which you were hewn. If you don't reflect and you don't look back at where the Lord has delivered you from, it's very easy to forget where you currently are with the Lord. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. I want to just run through this quickly. The prophetic signs and the significance of the feasts of Leviticus 23. On Israel's calendar, the four spring feasts were grouped together. The three fall feasts were all grouped with uh, one another. These uh, There are, was a separation of time between the two groups of feasts. As a group, the first four feasts point to the work of Jesus in the first coming, his earthly ministry, as recorded in the New Testament accounts. Uh, the feast of Passover clearly points to Jesus as our Passover. We talked about him uh, being the Passover lamb. You can see that First Corinthians chapter 5, verse uh, 17. Uh, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, talking about the corruption as we did, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 27. The Feast uh, of First Fruits points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, you might want to make note of Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 20 and 23. You can get these notes from me later if you'd like. The Feast of Pentecost points to the birth of the church, the harvest of souls that came in Acts chapter 2. Uh, between the first set of four feasts and the second set of four feasts, there's that huge time gap uh, that takes place uh, almost four months. Uh, there was time of harvest in Israel even as it is in our current age, is time of the harvest of the church until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that big gap there, Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Second group of the last three feasts point to the events associated with the second coming of uh, Jesus. Uh, the feast of trumpets, right? We're all waiting for that trumpet to blow and will be called up into his presence. First Thessalonians chapter 4 Verses 16 through 17, the Day of Atonement not only points to the ultimate perfect atonement of Jesus offered on our behalf, but also of the affliction and salvation Israel will see during the Great Tribulation, the things that they're going to go through. The last, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles points uh, to the millennial rest and comfort of God for Israel and all the people of God, the beginning to its end, all have to rest in his peacefulness throughout that entire celebration. So while there's other things in the other festivals during that one, it is rest. As we said, the Feast of Tabernacles specifically said to be celebrated during the millennium, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 19. 
there is at least some evidence that each of the four feasts pointing to the first coming of Jesus saw their prophetic fulfillment on the exact day of the feast. So each one of those feasts that was declared during Jesus' ministry, it occurred exactly according to the feasts that were taking place. Uh, you can examine each of those uh, looking at the crucifixion, John chapter 19, verse 14, Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 19. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we talked about how he ate the Passover the day before, uh, fulfilling that with his apostles. The church was founded on the actual day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, for this reason, some suggest that uh, it would be consistent for God to gather his people to himself on the day of the Feast of Trumpets. So, you know, you can pay attention to that annually as it comes around and you're waiting for that to occur. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. It would be very fitting that the Lord would, you know, bring those things to happen on the very day uh, that uh, they were celebrating those feasts. Every other one that was fulfilled was fulfilled on the days that they were celebrating those feasts. So, you know, no man knows the hour of the day, but uh, he also said of the believers that they should have known and they should have been watching. So, uh, you know, pay attention and uh, the Lord will accomplish his work as we see things gearing up the way they are right now. Prophetically, it's time to be excited, not fearful. Amen? Amen. Well, why don't we stand and we'll pray uh, together. Uh, we will be here uh, this evening uh, for our study, 1 Corinthians. So if the Lord leads you to, uh, we'll be here at 6 o'clock. Father, we thank you very much for uh, the ability to gather together and the commandment to gather together. And I just see, Lord, how much we need to do this. Uh, the faces and conversations and uh, how our enemy would love us to be separated from one another and grow distant from one another and distant from you. Accomplish your work in our hearts. Bless us. Keep us. Watch over us until we're able to be together again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.